Let's continue our time together with a word of prayer as we uh, look to the Lord and His Word. Uh, Let's pray. Father, indeed, we live between these two advents, these two comings. And as we look forward to your coming, uh, at this Advent season of the year, we celebrate that first coming. Uh, The people before you were longing for your arrival, and now we again are longing for your second arrival. And so I pray that as we come to you this morning, our hearts would be open to the things that you would teach us about that first arrival and what that means for us uh, as your people today. You truly were born to set us free. We ask that from our fears and sins you would indeed release us and may we find rest. And Lord, we acknowledge that the word of God has indeed become flesh Unto us a child is born, the Savior of this broken world, and we acknowledge that peace has come, for our King is with us. We are in so much need of peace, and we ask for that peace that you would give us. And so today, as we look at your word, may you feed us, may you nourish us on the truth of your word, and may we leave here changed people, changed perhaps in something we know about you, something changed in an attitude or a perspective that we have towards you or those around us, changed perhaps in some skill, some way of practical living in our day-to-day life, that we would be changed people, that we would leave here not just smarter, but wiser and more able to live for you in this world. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, dig in this morning, uh, just turn your attention if you're that kind of person who likes to do that. There's a note sheet in your uh, bulletin that you can follow along uh, with that as we go along to uh, jot some things down if you'd like. We're in this uh, second Sunday of the Advent season. Last week, uh, Paul Brown brought us a message on hope and helped us to focus on the idea that hope is not wishful thinking. From a biblical perspective, hope is a confident expectation of a favorable outcome. And today we're going to look at the idea of peace. Next week Paul will be back with us again looking at joy. And then the following week I'll be here looking at love. And so these four components of Christ's coming. The uh, word Advent is something that we use and it's uh, it's important for us to know what it means, I guess. The, the word means arrival or appearance or coming. So we talk about the Lord's advent. We talk about his coming, his arrival, his appearance to us. And as uh, I included in my prayer, we live between these two advents, his first coming, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. And now we anticipate his second advent, his second coming. And, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's where we are living now. And this Christmas season is a time of a joyful anticipation, right, of, of Jesus' birth, something wonderful is com- coming, we get all excited, the Christmas music, I think, I think they waited until after Halloween to get it started this year, right? Uh, the Christmas music starts and we have this idea that something wonderful is coming, but what I'd like to do is break out of that a little bit and ask you to think now of your fears Think of your anxieties, think of your stresses, and answer this question, which is included on your, on your note sheet there. I could live in peace if, and just fill in that blank, I could live in peace if, 
and fill in the blank. And I'll give you 30 seconds to think about that. How many of you thought that was longer than 30 seconds? <laughs> Feels like a long time, doesn't it? That was 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. We don't like silence, do we? It, uh, feels like a long time. So what we'd like to do is that we're going to look at three passages today to discuss this issue of peace. That's what we're looking at today in this second Sunday of Advent. And so I direct your attention to Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 14. We're going to use this as our launching pad for this discussion. Uh, this is a familiar story for those of us who know the Christmas story of talking about the night of Jesus' birth, uh, and we're going to pull one thing out of this to focus our discussion. So I'm going to read uh, these verses, Luke chapter 2, uh, from verse 4 to 14. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God on the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we read those, and we say, yes, right, peace. And then if you think about it, you say, really? How many of us would say this is a peaceful time of year? The chaos of holiday preparations, the griefs, perhaps, of loss, and unfulfilled expectations, and the ever-present stresses, anxieties, and fears, both personally, within, personally, intrapersonally, and even globally. Uh, we sing of peace, we embrace this idea of peace. Everybody is looking for peace, but it seems to be so elusive. Um, and sometimes I don't think we connect our words here glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with what our reality is. So to understand where peace comes from, we have to understand why we have no peace. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, first. Why do we have no peace? Well, the problem uh, will stem, let's look at the meanings of the two words used for peace. Uh, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament for peace is irene. They both mean about the same thing. 
And when we talk about peace, we think of absence of conflict. And that's part of the meaning of peace, but that's not the total meaning of peace. It really means completeness or well-being or health, tranquility. It encompasses all of these ideas that peace is when everything is working just as it was intended to work, harmoniously and together. Uh, that is a state of peace. Well, if you ask in the Bible, uh, where do we see this perfect peace that you're talking about? Well, I don't, I, I don't know how many chapters there are in the Bible, but I do know that there are four of the hundreds of chapters in the Bible that speak of peace. Uh, the first two are Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the world. It says, in the beginning, God created a very good, good world of beauty and perfect peace. Everything and everyone functioning perfectly as designed. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we get this picture of perfect peace, of everything working just as it was intended to work. And then we have to jump to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation 21 and 22. The last two chapters of the Bible talk about a time of peace. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no more death, no more sadness, no more crying or pain, where all is now functioning perfectly as it was intended. Unfortunately, today, uh, we live between those four chapters. We li live between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The Bible records our first ancestors' decision to reject God and to live life on their own terms. And that's what, when we talk about sin, that's what the essence of sin is. It is rejecting God, refusing to trust and believe Him, and deciding to live life on our own terms. And now we are living with the consequences of that decision, which includes, but not limited to, shame and fear and interpersonal conflict, pain, murder. The earth was filled with violence, is one of the early testimonies of human nature, and not long after that, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This describes this life between these two bookends of Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And so here is the answer to our question of why we have no peace. Our inability to live at peace with God, with one another, and with ourselves is directly connected to our rejection of God. Our inability to live at peace with God, with one another, and with ourselves is directly connected to our rejection of God, to our desire to live life on our terms, apart from God. It's important to know why we have no peace, because if we want to answer those questions or those blanks that you filled in earlier, we have to be able to know what the cause of those things are so that we can come up with the proper treatment. And this is excerpted from our bulletin today. Uh, into the midst of that darkness, into the midst of that peacelessness, comes this message 600 years before Jesus was born from Isaiah. For to us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. One of the things that is promised with the coming of the Messiah is that he would be the prince of peace. So what I'd like to do now is uh, 
Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'd like to look a little bit about this peace that Jesus has brought us. Uh, what does that look like? Since we live in a time where there's no peace, or certainly not a lasting, unenduring peace, what did Jesus do to bring us peace? And so I direct our attention to Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 17. And this is going to introduce to us the key answer to how we find peace in this world. Paul is jumping in, or we're jumping into, Paul didn't jump into it, he developed it. We're jumping into the middle of Paul's discussion here. He's talking about the, the alienation that existed between Jew and Gentile. And he's jumping into what Jesus has done to remedy that that hostility, that difference. Uh, just for those of you who may not know, for someone to be classified as a Jew meant that they were physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had Isaac who had Jacob. And through that lineage, those people who were sons of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob were called Jews. Everyone else is Gentile. Everyone else is outside of that what came to be known as the people of God or the family of God. And there was this division. The Jews had the promises of God, had the law of God, had the word of God, had God's presence with them. The Gentiles did not. And so we're jumping into the middle of Paul's discussion at that, and he's talking to the Ephesians as Gentiles. So when he says you, he's talking to the Ephesians as Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is our standing. So Paul tells us when he starts off here, he tells us what our problem is with lack of peace. Why do we have no peace? He says the reason that there, you have no peace is that you are separated from Christ you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. And this is such a sad thing if you let it sink in. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we are apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ. We uh, have no hope because we were without God in the world. So now, not only does Paul identify what our problem is, he then also gives us the solution in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So our problem is we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. But in Christ Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Then he goes on to say how that happened, and in verse 14, he says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, thus making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near. So what's happening here? What God is saying is that 
If you look at verse 14, you say, where do I find peace? What does verse 14 say? He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Peace is not a thing. Peace is not a feeling. Peace is not a state of mind. Peace is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And what are the results of that, Paul says? He doesn't just bring us peace. He is our peace. In verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God. So we are reconciled to God. Our relationship with God is restored. We are separated from God because of our rejection of him, because of our sin, because of our saying, no, I want to live life on my own terms. We are enemies of God, and God comes to us. Jesus dies on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. He dies the death that we deserve, and he draws us back into restoring our relationship with God. So now that we have peace with God, we have peace with God. He's reconciled us to God. The next thing we see, actually mentioned it earlier in verse 14, he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So what Paul is saying here, instead of there being Jew and Gentile, there is one person that we now call Christian. We are united together in Christ. So not only do we have peace with God, we have peace with one another because of what he has done. And this isn't just a Jew-Gentile thing. Paul says later in Galatians, there's no slave nor free, there's no male nor female, there's no uh, Jew or Greek, there's, no, there's none of these racial, ethnic, personal, demographic divisions. We are all one in Christ Jesus. He has broken down those barriers and made peace. So we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. And then Paul goes on to say, in Philippians 4, that not only do we have the peace with God, but we have peace of God within our hearts and minds because we can bring our concerns to Jesus knowing that he loves us and cares for us and will take care of our concerns. So because Jesus himself is our peace, we can have peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within ourselves. Peace is a person. Peace is a person, and that person is Jesus. I think we should take note here that Jesus accomplished that peace with something that seems rather paradoxical. Uh, if you look in verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus purchased our peace through two events of violence through two acts of violence. That seems rather paradoxical, right? Jesus had violence perpetrated on him as he bore the wrath of God for our sin. He bore the death for us. The, the powers of evil, the powers of evil, in a sense, conquered him. They assailed him. He died as the result of what we should have died at the hands of the power of evil. And the Bible doesn't say so explicitly that I'm aware of, but I get, when I read that story and I read this account, I get the sense that it's almost like Satan and evil are there saying, gotcha. They won. 
Evil wins, wickedness wins, sin wins because the Savior of the world, the proposed Savior, he said he was going to be the Savior, is now dead. We got him. But then what does he say? He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what a, it's the world's greatest turnabout because death thought he had him. In reality, Jesus conquered death. And how did Jesus conquer death? Jesus conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. I mean, go figure that out. But it was a turnabout. He turned evil on its head. He conquered our greatest enemy. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered evil by allowing himself to experience the full wrath of that death and that evil and that sin. But because he has done that, we can have true peace. Because when does true peace really come, even in our world? When does true peace come? True peace comes only when all of the enemies of peace are destroyed, right? That's when peace comes, when there are no more enemies. And Jesus is the only one who could really accomplish what true peace would be all about because there is no... We can try to put together some uh, semblance of peace, but there is no real peace unless you take care of that alienation from God. There is no peace unless you take care of our separation from God. There's no peace unless you take care of our enemies of sin and evil and death. Jesus is the only one who could do that, and he did it by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Death thought he had him when he was in the tomb, and when Jesus walked out of the tomb, death was finished. It was over. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, if you think about your list, if you think about your list, I could live in peace if... I'm not going to ask you what you put in there. Uh, I had a fairly long list of things I would put in there. But I came up with a list of things that could be in there, some of which are mine, some of which I would imagine would be others. So I could live in peace if I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I could live in peace if I had a better job. I could live in peace if I had a dog or a cat. I could live in peace if my wife was a better person. I could live in peace if my husband was a better person. Actually, I could live in peace if I didn't have a wife anymore or didn't have a husband anymore. I could live in peace if I had more money. I could live in peace if my children obeyed me. I could live in peace. Somebody said amen on that one. <laughs> I could live in peace if I got good grades, if I got into a good school. I could live in peace if I had no more troubles if everything was smooth sailing. I could live in peace if I had the right therapist. I could live in peace if I wasn't sick. I could live in peace if I had the right church. I could live in peace if I had a bigger house, if I had a smaller house. I could live in peace if I had less to do. I could live in peace if I had more to do. I could live in peace if I had my next dose, your next dose of whatever it might be. The problem is any attempts to define peace on these terms is a fragile, unreal peace. 
We think that we're going to find peace if we can fill in those blanks. And those attempts to find peace are fragile, very unreal peace. And the great wisdom of Charles Schultz, uh, Charlie Brown helps Sally to deal with this issue because Sally finally thinks she's found the key to peace. And she says, all my life I have searched for calmness. It was a difficult struggle, but it was worth it. Now I have a beautiful inward peace. Don't we all strive for that, right? There is nothing anyone can say or do that can disturb my calmness. School starts next week. Isn't that what our self-made peace is like? We fill in the blank. I would have peace if we fortify it. We we promise ourselves it's not going to happen. And then something totally unexpected that we didn't plan for comes out of the blue. And that peace, that carefully constructed peace, is revealed for the fragile thing that it really is. It's an unreal peace. Because we look for peace in all the wrong places, right? They say you're looking for love in all the wrong places. We do the same thing with peace. We're looking for peace in all the wrong places. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to turn to what is probably my favorite passage in dealing with this because we have an example in Scripture of this peace. You say, okay, I get this, but what does it look like in real life. We have a real life example of what it means that Jesus himself is our peace. Remember we said peace is not a thing, peace is not a feeling, it's not a condition, it's not a state of mind. Peace is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. Well what does it mean that Jesus is our peace? I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 and we're going to walk through verses 35 to 41. It's a passage that may be familiar to many of us. If it's not familiar to you, this is a great example of what it means that Jesus himself is our peace. I'm going to read through the passage to get the general drift of the story that happens here, and then we'll come back and we'll comment on it. On that day, when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said, let us go across to the other side. They are on one side of the Lake of Galilee at the shore, and they want to, Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let us cross to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the details of the story are fairly clear. Jesus and his disciples, at Jesus' instructions, get into the boat to go to the other side of the lake. And while they're on their way over, they're somewhere in the middle of the lake, halfway through their journey, too far to turn back, too too soon to get to where they're going. 
This huge storm arises, and the boat is filling up with water as the waves break over the boat. And these guys who are seasoned fishermen, they, they know the lake. They know how to handle a boat. This is not me going out on the ocean in a canoe. This is seasoned fishermen crossing a lake that they are very familiar with. They have done this many times with a storm that is beyond their ability to handle. And they are facing, facing this life-threatening storm. They realize their lives are in danger now. They're not blowing this out of proportion. They're not... They, this is not chicken little, the sky is falling because an acorn falls out of the tree. This is a literal life-threatening situation that they are facing. Jesus calms the storm, and he doesn't just calm it. He brings a great calm, it says, a great calm. And so that's the drift of the story. But I think we need to look a little closer to get this idea of what it means that Jesus himself is our peace. So where is Jesus during this storm? Jesus is in perfect peace, sleeping in the back of the boat, while his disciples are in perfect panic, trying to bail the water out. So we have this contrast of perfect peace and perfect panic. Now, I don't want to minimize their panic because this was truly a life-threatening situation. This, they weren't blowing this out of proportion. They weren't making waves out of, oh no, I can't. They weren't making anything bigger out of this than it really was. There was something serious going on here. But Jesus is in perfect peace, sleeping in the back of the boat. His followers are in a perfect panic. When Jesus wakes up, we read over this and we don't think, just try to imagine the, the greatest storm that you've lived through or seen or whatever, and the wind is howling and the rain is coming and trees are blowing and you think the tree's going to come down in your house and your gazebo is long gone because it's blown across the yard. And somebody walks out and says, stop. And instantly, everything stops. The rain stops, sun comes out, birds start singing, the wind stops, everything's done. And it's not just a calm, it's a great calm, the scripture says. If we look at this closely, each party asks two questions about this situation, which settles the issue of our lack of peace. Each party asks two questions. The disciples' first question, if you look at it, is they go back to see Jesus sleeping, and what do they say? Do you not care that we are drowning? Do you not care that we are drowning? How many times have you asked God that question in the midst of the storms of your life? God, do you not care about my job? Do you not care about this struggle I'm having with my kids? Do you not care about my applications to school? Do you not care about my health situations? God, where are you? Do you not care? And then when Jesus calms the storm, what is their question after that? Who is this? Who is this? He says that in verse 41. Who is this that even the wind 
and the waves obey him? That's a great question, isn't it? Who is this? Who is it indeed? This isn't just one of them. This is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign, the one who alone dwells in immortality and unapproachable light, the one who can stand up from the back of a boat and says, guys, quiet. And everything's quiet. Do you not care that we're perishing? What is that? That's a question of doubt. That's a question of faithlessness. That's a question that's rooted in real danger. I understand. I'm, I'm not minimizing. The disciples were ready to drown. And these problems that we come to God with are real problems. We're not, you know, some people say, well, you know, your problem, that's not a big problem. Don't worry about it. You know, it's, no, these are big problems. These are real problems. But what do we need to know about Jesus? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? That's who that is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the disciples' first question is, do you not care? That's the question that's at the root of all of our anxieties and fears because we doubt God's goodness for us. We doubt God's love. We doubt his ability to care for us because he's not working the way we want in the time we want. And our lives are in danger in some way, but that's at the root of our anxieties and fears. And then who then is this? Well, a correct answer to that question alleviates our anxieties and our fears and puts us at peace if we can answer that question correctly of who is this. Well, Jesus asked two questions too. In verse 40, he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Why am I afraid? The boat's sinking. I'm ready to drown. I can't swim. I'm in the middle of the lake. There's a storm. Why am I afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? They had seen miracles. They had seen him do things. This is not the first rodeo. This is not the first time they had been with Jesus in difficult circumstances where he did something miraculous, and yet they still didn't expect him to come through for them. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? How many of us have been there? Many of us have walked with the Lord for many years, right? And something comes along that's too big for us, and we say, Lord, where are you? Do you not care? And Jesus' answer is, well, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is not meant to put guilt on us and say, oh, yeah, I'm just a low person. I have no faith. No, it's to focus our attention on the true answer of where our peace comes from. Our peace is not going to come from filling in the blanks. I could have peace if these things that we filled the blanks in with. The, our answer is going to come uh, when we understand who Jesus is. Jesus says, have you still no faith, that's the key to our peace. Is Jesus worthy of our trust? Is he the King of kings? Is he the Lord of lords? Is he the lover of our souls? Is he the shepherd, the savior, the guide? Is he our friend? I'm not much, well, I enjoy, I'll say that. I was going to say I'm not much for bumper sticker theology, but I, I enjoy bumper sticker theology because sometimes it's pretty clever. This one actually I think is pretty good. If there's no God in your life, there is no peace. But if you know God, you know who he is, you will know peace. There is no peace without knowing who God is. There is no peace. We may put, like Sally, we may put a, a fragile peace together and convince ourselves that we have found peace, but it's a very fragile peace. 
a very fragile peace. Peace is not the absence of troubles. Peace is not the absence of troubles, but the presence of God. The disciples were in a life-threatening storm. Jesus was at peace in that same life-threatening storm. What was the difference? The difference is that Jesus knew that peace was not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God, of which he was himself God. And I toyed with this, and you can, you can ponder this great theological question yourself. Was Jesus in the boat with the disciples, or were the disciples in the boat with Jesus? But the fact of the matter is that Jesus was there with them. They were going through this storm together. And I believe that's what this story teaches us, that in the storms of life that we face, Jesus is there with us, and that's what can bring us peace. Peace is not the absence of troubles, but the presence of God. Again, Isaiah referred to this 600 or so years before Jesus came. He says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. He doesn't say you keep him in perfect peace who's got all his schedule worked out so it works out well. You keep him in perfect peace who has all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. You keep him in perfect peace who everything is smooth sailing. No, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So if you lack peace, what's our tendency? Our tendency is to try to change the circumstances that are causing us this lack of peace. Any, am I the only one that's ever been there? Has anybody else done that? Right? We try to change our circumstances. Well, I'm not at peace. We fill in the blank. I'm not at peace because of this. All right, so I need to change this to get peace. What Jesus is telling us and what God is telling us here is if we lack peace, don't focus on changing our circumstances. Focus on getting to know and trust Jesus more fully. If we're suffering from a lack of peace, don't try to change our circumstances. Try to know and trust Jesus more fully. Get to know who he is, what his character, what his person is. To trust him. Remember the disciples in the boat. Who then is this? If we answer that question correctly, that's the large part of the key to our answer for peace. Well, how do we get to that? Well, the one place we find out who God is is right here, is in the Bible. God has given us his word in part to reveal to us who he is and who he is for us. And if we want to get to know him. You are not going to get to know him apart from this book. You cannot get to know who he is apart from this. Now, reading it may not get you to know him if you don't read it with an eye to search for God, but you will not get to know him if you don't read it and if you don't study it. And that includes on your own, and that includes things like what we're doing now is, is talking together about these things from a teacher. But there's another way that we need to get to know who God is, and that is that we need to remind one another of who God is. Because how many of us have gone through storms of life and we sort of lose our way, right? The rain is coming, the winds are howling, the boat's taking on water, and I can't see straight, and I don't know what's going on, I don't know what to do next, and I'm going to drown, Lord, don't you care? And somebody comes alongside and reminds me of who God is. 
Somebody comes along and reminds me where Jesus is in all this, that he died for me, that he loves me, he cares for me, he has not forgotten about me. And then I can rest in the midst of the storm a little bit because that brother or sister has reminded me who God is. We need to remind one another in the midst of the storms. Not say, don't worry, hang on, grit your teeth, this will get over. You know, I had a friend who had the same thing, and after six months they were fine. No, that's a fragile, unreal peace. Yes, I can understand your pain. I can see what you're going through, but let me pray for you because I know that God can take care of this. I know that God's in the middle of this. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know Jesus loves you, and I know he's going to take care of you through this. We need to remind each other of these things. And then if you're like me, there are times that I just have to repent of my trust in myself when I'm finding myself, and it usually happens at work. It's not always at work, but it's usually at work where I'm just so overwhelmed with everything that's going on and I'm getting frustrated and I'm getting, there, my, there is no peace. There just is no peace. There are times I have to back up and I say, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for focusing on my circumstances. Forgiving, forgive me for allowing all of this stuff to overwhelm me. Forgive me for getting who you are. Help me to rest in you and trust in you that you're going to take care of this and you're going to work out the details and I'm not going to have to be here till midnight to finish this work. And even if I do have to be here till midnight, you're going to be there with me and it's going to be okay. Forgive me. Because we're so prone to lose our way, aren't we? And we're so prone to say, God, where are you? And when I'm in the midst of those trials, I, I, I know enough now not to shake my fist at God. But I still question his goodness for me sometimes. Say, God, you really could have stopped this. I know you could. See, I know God well enough that I know he could have stopped it and he didn't stop it. And so where is he in the midst of this? He's, he's inviting me to trust him in the midst of this trial. So let's fill in the blank then. Really, I could live in peace if what? I live in a manner consistent with who Jesus is. Now, you may be able to word this in your own way, but I could live in peace if I live in a manner consistent with who Jesus is. Who is he? He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who loves me. He's the one who died for me. He's our shepherd. He's our guide. He's the King of kings. He's the one who can calm the sea with a word. This is who he is. So I could live in peace regardless of what's going on around me if I live in a manner consistent with who Jesus is. The disciples could have had perfect peace in that boat. They might have drowned. God doesn't guarantee they weren't going to drown. It's just in that instance they didn't. He calmed the sea for them. But he will rescue them anyway, because even if they drowned, they would be in heaven with him. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself, because it's not there. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself, because it's not there. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as happiness and peace apart from God himself. And so if we need happiness and peace, if we're pursuing happiness and peace, what do we need to do? Don't pursue happiness and peace because you won't find it. If you want happiness and, and peace, you pursue God. You pursue him. You pursue getting to know who he is because if you pursue him, what will you have? you will have peace because peace is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. 
So this Christmas season is a joyful anticipation of Jesus' birth. Something wonderful is coming for many of us, but not all of us. It is a heartwarming time of songs, friends, family, presents. But Christmas should be more than heartwarming. Christmas should challenge all of us to consider what we are putting our hope in, what we are seeking to give us peace on earth, goodwill among men. Christmas should challenge all of us to consider what are we putting our hope in, what are we seeking to give us peace on earth, goodwill among men. Jesus alone is the one able to relieve our fears and to give us peace in the storms of life. Peace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, born as the Prince of Peace. So the invitation is to get to know Him and trust Him a little more this Advent and Christmas season and the year ahead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that we can celebrate this Advent season, this time of year where we anticipate, we remember, we celebrate Your first coming. And I pray that You would help us to be able to live in the reality of that first coming, that there is a name that we can call in time of trouble that there is a song that comforts us in the night. There is a voice that calms the storm that rages. And that name is the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that that baby in the manger is not some sweet sentimental story of a cute baby, as nice as that is to think about but is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, humbling himself to come to earth to live the full gamut of human life as we did so that he can conquer those greatest enemies of our peace. He can conquer our fears and our anxieties and our worries. He can conquer death. He can conquer evil once and for all. And those forces of evil tried to do away with him, but that attempt to do away with him was merely playing right into your hands where he was able to conquer those things by bearing the full wrath of those things upon himself and then rising from the dead. And so, Lord, I pray that during those times of storms in our life, when we are asking like the disciples, Lord, don't you care? That we would be able to rightly answer the question that they later asked, who then is this? May we be able to answer that, that this person is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh who loves us, who died for us, who came for us, who, he, who himself is our peace. And help us to remember in times of trouble that peace is not a thing. Peace is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.